Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. In the fall of 2019, the world began one of the largest evolutionary biology experiments in modern history. Somewhere near the city of Wuhan in eastern China, a coronavirus acquired the ability to live inside humans rather than the bats and other mammals that had been its hosts. It adapted further to become efficient at spreading from one person to the next, even before the body's defenses could rise against it. The evolutionary chess game didn't stop there. We have a Greek alphabet soup of SARS-CoV-2 variants to prove it. Researchers around the world are trying to understand the virus's evolution in more detail. That's next. Imagine you're in a lab where you've synthesized ancient DNA sequences and spliced them into modern bacteria just to see how they'd react. They needed each other, but they didn't want each other. <laughs> so, you know, it was like a very complicated relationship unfolding in front of me. This isn't Jurassic Park or some sci-fi movie. I'm Steve Strogatz, and this is The Joy of Why a new podcast from Quantum Magazine that takes you into some of the biggest unanswered mysteries in science and math today, where the knots with three crossings, the type you know from your shoelaces, are just the beginning of a much bigger story. There's one four-crossing knot, there are two five-crossing knots. We've tabulated all the possible knots up to 19 crossings, and there's over 300 million of those knots up to 19 crossings. And unraveling the mysteries of sleep means studying fish, living in caves? We can look at the differences in sleep between each population of cavefish and understand how genetic variation leads to sleep differences. And that's really important because sleep in humans is incredibly variable. Some people need five hours of sleep. Other people need eight hours of sleep. We'll hope to learn more about distant planets and the early universe with the help of the new James Webb Space Telescope. Nature gave us an opportunity to study seven Earth-sized planets all in one system. Just imagine if there were seven Earths in our solar system. And we'll travel back in time to try to figure out how life began on Earth. I think it's one of the lovely uh, ironies of the whole field that the best starting material to build all of the molecules of life turns out to be cyanide. You don't have to be a scientist or a mathematician to wonder why. That's the point. The joy is in asking and trying to understand. I'm a mathematician, and I would love to get closer to answering the big questions, not only in math, but in all of science. How did life begin on Earth? Why do we have to sleep? Why are mathematical knots so hard to untangle? And what can the most powerful telescope ever built tell us about deep space? Join me on The Joy of Why as we explore these questions. We may not have all the answers yet, but I'm pretty sure the curiosity to figure them out is in our DNA. Subscribe to The Joy of Why wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every other Thursday, starting March 24th. Coronavirus researchers are particularly interested in how mutations in SARS-CoV-2 alter its ability to spread among humans. 
Justin Meyer is an evolutionary biologist at the University of California, San Diego. Just the fact that biotic environment that the virus is in is always changing around it and always sort of causing these shifts in the fitness landscape, that opens up new adaptive pathways and allows it to explore new functions. So a really well-adapted virus today is going to be maladapted tomorrow as its host evolves resistance. And then it has to then figure out a new way to infect that host. So that drives the innovation. That drives the novelty. Even though it's been depressing to see the human toll from the constantly shifting pandemic, the abundance of scientific data from watching the virus evolve as it moves around the globe has been instructive. Lucha Ferretti, a statistical geneticist at the Big Data Institute of the University of Oxford, says COVID has given us some of the most beautiful examples of evolution in action. Predicting exactly what the virus may do next may never be possible, but virologists around the world have been gaining insights into which components of SARS-CoV-2 are most prone to evolve and which key protein elements can't change without tanking its survival. That information could point the way to better, more enduring vaccines. Other studies have highlighted ways in which the virus could evolve resistance to the monoclonal antibody therapies used to treat some severely ill COVID-19 patients. The work has also pinpointed specific combinations of mutations that, if they become more widespread in the viral population, could usher in a new phase of the pandemic driven by variants that excel at evading our immune defenses in addition to spreading quickly. Scientists have been able to make these discoveries by using modern technologies to revisit a concept proposed almost a century ago, fitness or adaptive landscapes. They can use fitness landscapes to quantify the relationship between changes to the viral genome and its ability to replicate and infect a new host. The topographic maps representing that relationship can help to reconstruct the virus's history. They could also at least potentially predict its future. To Tobias Vornica, a molecular evolutionary biologist at Imperial College London, fitness landscapes are an invaluable way to connect genotype to phenotype, that is, genes to individual traits. He says you can tap into their quantitative potential. You can look at one mutation and look at how that affects phenotype, and you can look at another mutation and how that affects phenotypes. And then you can start asking questions, well, how do these mutations affect the phenotype together? And how is that influenced by the presence of a third mutation? And in that way, you can go through many different combinations of the genotype and see how that affects whatever you're interested in. The value of fitness landscapes isn't limited to comparisons between small numbers of changes in genomes or proteins. Modern experimental techniques enable a strategy called deep mutational scanning. Researchers perform a small-scale experiment in natural selection and compare the fitness value of tens of thousands of mutant variants at once. The process can reveal unforeseen interactions between mutations that can help or hurt a virus, and it can identify paths for the future evolution of a virus that might pose new threats to humans. 
In On the Origin of Species, Charles Darwin wrote that natural selection was the result of the preservation of favorable individual differences and variations and the destruction of those which are injurious. In those days, before the scientific understanding of genetics and mutations, biologists could only try to imagine how small inheritable changes to an organism could impact its reproduction. The idea fully solidified only with work by American biologist Sewell Wright. In his seminal 1932 paper in the Proceedings of the Sixth International Congress of Genetics, he used hand-drawn diagrams to illustrate how an organism might move through the almost infinite field of possible variations through which the species may work its way under natural selection. Wright noted that one way to visualize the vast number of possible variants of linear molecules like DNA or peptides was to treat each possibility as a unique point in space. You can think of evolution of the molecule as a path between the points for the initial and final variants. It hits all the points for intermediate variants along the way. As an aid to understanding the complex graphs of these variants and the evolutionary paths between them, Wright showed that they can be represented as more intuitive, adaptive landscapes of just two or three dimensions. The horizontal axes plot the variability in DNA, aka genotypes, or physical traits, aka phenotypes. The more similar two variants are, the closer they sit on the plane. The vertical axis measures the impact of the variation on evolutionary fitness. Variants then improve an organism's odds of surviving, whether by increasing its viable offspring or improving the function of its proteins, perch on peaks, while those that diminish the odds of surviving languish in valleys. Adam Loring, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Michigan Medical School, says we end up with a landscape that has a unique topography. If the mapped variants don't differ much in their impact on fitness, then the landscape looks fairly flat, much like Nebraska. Variants with large effects on fitness create a landscape that more closely resembles the towering hoodoos of Bryce Canyon in Utah. Natural selection favors the variants on peaks. The average genotype or phenotype of a species should evolve by moving from one peak to the next, ideally along a ridge between them rather than through the valleys. Here's Loring. You move a few feet, you're going to fall off and you're going to go down in fitness a lot. And then getting up again is very hard. That would be called a rugged fitness landscape. There are fewer pathways to move around. Claudia Bank researches evolutionary dynamics at the University of Bern in Switzerland. She says the theory is very straightforward. You just need to know all your genotypes and then you measure the fitness. You can basically predict anything that might happen. But then in reality, of course, it's a lot more complicated because it's just immediately so complex because there are so many possible genotypes. So then it basically becomes a super complicated thing in reality. One complication is that a fitness landscape, whether for SARS-CoV-2 or a human, isn't static. A mutation that lets an organism digest a new food but makes it grow more slowly could be either a lifesaver or a lethal handicap. 
A variant's impact on evolutionary fitness depends on the environment in which an organism lives. When the environment changes, so does the fitness landscape. Here's Loring again. Different mutations can have different impacts that depend on the fitness landscape. Creating fitness landscapes is also a mathematical challenge. Even a small protein, just 100 amino acids in length, will have more than 20,000 possible variants. That's more than the number of atoms in the universe. It's hard to imagine, let alone compute, the complex topographies of fitness landscapes for real proteins and the likelihood of various paths across them. So for decades, fitness landscapes were conceptual aids rather than tools for concrete measurements. Only recently, with advanced computing power and improved molecular biological technology, have scientists been able to start making quantitative landscapes for individual proteins and simple organisms like bacteria and viruses. In fact, bacteria and viruses are almost ideal subjects for fitness landscapes. They grow by the millions or billions in a test tube, and each bacterial cell or viral particle can harbor one mutation from the huge pool of variants that describe the fitness landscape. Their short generation times, on the scale of hours or days, also allow researchers to identify new mutations much more quickly. Most viruses that use RNA as their genetic material, including HIV and the hepatitis C virus, are also highly prone to mutation. That's because the RNA polymerase that replicates their genome doesn't proofread the copies as effectively as DNA polymerases do. One of the things scientists began to discover is that despite the complexity of the landscapes, organisms are often constrained to just a handful of fitness maxima and a limited number of pathways between them. A 2006 science paper took a close look at a protein called beta-lactamase, which inactivates antibiotics such as penicillin. The joint effects of five single nucleotide mutations in beta-lactamase can increase its antibiotic resistance by a factor of 100,000. Daniel Weinreich was an evolutionary biology postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University at the time and now heads a laboratory at Brown University. He and his colleagues noted that the evolution of the gene could potentially follow 120 paths to accumulate all five mutations. But when the scientists created and tested the intermediary variants in the lab, they found that 102 of the paths weren't possible under natural selection because they produced defective or incomplete proteins. The possibilities narrowed further when they found that many of the remaining combinations failed to improve antibiotic resistance. The researchers wrote that this implies that the protein tape of life may be largely reproducible and even predictable. But predicting the future evolutionary trajectory of even the smallest virus or protein requires a detailed knowledge of its fitness landscape, which is hard to obtain. Historically, scientists had to create mutations one nucleotide or amino acid at a time, then purify the mutant protein and assess its function. It was often impractical to examine more than a few of the possible mutations. The development of technologies for deep mutational scanning changed all of that. 
This technique allows scientists to generate tens of thousands of variants in one go. They then make all of the variants compete against one another to determine their relative fitness value. Researchers start by creating a library of variant genes that can be cloned into cultured cells. The genes code for a protein whose activity is linked to some biochemical function that can be selected for in the laboratory. That means the cells making the fittest, most active versions of these proteins will become more abundant, while cells making inactive versions disappear. With high-throughput DNA sequencing, researchers can then tally up the numbers of each variant for a quantitative measurement of how well it performed over multiple generations. With mutation-prone RNA viruses, scientists don't even have to generate variants in the lab. The error-prone genomic replication machinery introduces mutations and does the job for them. Each of the millions of copies of the virus is slightly different from its neighbors. This creates what virologists call a mutant swarm. Within this swarm is the raw material of evolution by natural selection. Samuel Alizon is an evolutionary ecologist at the Mivijac Laboratory in Montpellier, France. Microbes reproduce so rapidly that evolution happens on a daily basis. In fact, everything moves so quickly that Alizon says you can actually monitor evolution in real time. Researchers found that very few of the mutations in those swarms get passed on to new hosts, particularly when only a small amount of virus is required to cause an infection. Some of this is pure chance, a matter of which variant is in the right place at the right time. But University of California, San Francisco virologist Raul Andino Pavlovsky says by sketching out fitness landscapes, researchers can try to figure out why some variants are transmitted far more frequently than others. Not only do virus needs to be able to generate diversity, but it has to be able to tolerate this diversity how much tolerance of mutations, which is also called robustness to mutations, contribute to the evolution of a virus. Andino Pavlovsky says if you're a virus and you can tolerate changes, you're likely to be a virus that has much better capacity for adaptation. Evolutionary biologist Tyler Starr says fitness landscapes are the perfect way to describe how viruses from chronic or persistent infections evade the host's immune system's repeated efforts to neutralize them. It's why Starr joined the lab of Jesse Bloom at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center to study how HIV co-evolves with antibody immunity inside a patient over the course of an infection. His goal was to understand how this evolutionary arms race between a virus and the immune system yields antibodies with protective properties, which could help scientists developing an HIV vaccine to focus on the more immutable parts of the virus. But no sooner had Starr begun his work on HIV than another virus stole his and the world's attention. As SARS-CoV-2 began its global spread, Starr and Bloom realized that fitness landscapes provided a useful way to begin studying the novel pathogen. It gave them a way to figure out what factors were important in viral proteins and how much change the virus could tolerate. 
Initially, scientists sequencing SARS-CoV-2 didn't notice much genetic variation. Although coronaviruses use an error-prone RNA polymerase to copy their genetic material, SARS-CoV-2 has a second protein that acts as a proofreader, so researchers didn't expect the virus to acquire as many mutations as, let's say, influenza or HIV. Bloom and Starr knew that the spike protein would be the part of the coronavirus under the most intense evolutionary pressure. That's what the immune system recognizes most strongly, and what the virus uses to break into the body's cells. But with 1,273 amino acids, the spike protein is too big for rapid evaluation by a fitness landscape. So Starr decided to focus on a subsection of the spike protein, known as the receptor binding domain. It's just a few hundred amino acids, and a much more tractable problem. Starr used deep mutational scanning to create 4,000 different mutations of the receptor binding domain. He evaluated their ability to bind to the human ACE2 protein, which is the molecular lock it picks to enter cells, and to be recognized by the immune system. If SARS-CoV-2 couldn't tolerate much variation in its receptor-binding domain, Starr expected to see that the immune recognition, or ACE2 binding functions, would be severely compromised by mutations. But that's not at all what happened. Starr says the receptor-binding domain had a lot of mutations. It had a lot of mutations that actually improved binding affinity. And so we were like kind of confused because we were like, this looks like a really tolerant domain mutation. It looks like it has plenty of capacity to evolve. And yet the mindset at that time was coronaviruses don't evolve energetically. They're probably going to be stable. While the receptor binding domain tolerated more variation than expected, not all parts of the spike protein did. Starr says that means these parts of the spike protein may be good targets for new vaccines and monoclonal antibodies, since they're less likely to mutate over time. When they first posted these results on the bioarchive.org preprint server in June of 2020, Starr says it was a huge wake-up call. It was one of the first indications that SARS-CoV-2 was more mutable than people thought. Now Starr and Bloom are repeating their deep mutational scanning experiments on the alpha, beta, gamma, Delta, and Omicron variants to gain similar insights about their receptor-binding domains. Starr, Bloom, and their colleagues also created a map of all the possible mutations to the receptor-binding domain that didn't interfere with ACE2 binding. Their work was published in Science in January of 2021. It identified potential mutations in this domain that could evade neutralization by monoclonal antibody therapies. Their work also identified several mutations that emerged in an immunocompromised individual who was infected with SARS-CoV-2 for 150 days. By the time this person received monoclonal antibody treatment at day 145, they had already developed resistance to the available products on the market. To STAR, this showed that these therapeutic monoclonal antibodies could become less effective over time, either within a single patient or more generally as the virus mutates. 
Plus, as Starr, Bloom, and their colleagues described last summer in Nature Communications, several widespread mutations can each help SARS-CoV-2 evade some of the antibodies that the immune system typically directs against the most targeted parts of the receptor-binding domain. So far, no viral lineage has evolved to have all three of these mutations, but they wrote that the appearance of such a variant would be a worrying development and should be monitored closely. The world in which SARS-CoV-2 first emerged at the end of 2019 was different from the world of today. The ability of the virus to produce lots of copies of itself and to spread between individuals was surely key to its success early in the pandemic. But as the number of people immunized through vaccination and naturally acquired infection rises, the virus will experience more pressure to evade immune responses. Loring says many mutations come with trade-offs, and SARS-CoV-2 is no exception. An immune escape variant with reduced virus transmission might not have been favored in early 2020, but it might be now. Or in the words of evolutionary biologist Adam Loring, We're the environment for the virus, and so if we change, the landscape changes. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Carrie Arnold's full article, Evolution Landscapes Predict What's Next for COVID Virus on our website, quantamagazine.org. Check out the new Quanta Magazine podcast, The Joy of Why, launching Thursday, March 24th, wherever you listen to podcasts. Host Stephen Strogatz takes you on a journey of scientific curiosity, pursuing answers to some of the greatest scientific and mathematical questions of our time. Coming March 24th, 